0: Are you a Stuff to Blow Your Mind fan? Are you a New Yorker? Do you plan to attend this year's New York Comic Con? If so, then you've got to check out our exclusive live show, NYCC Presents Stuff to Blow Your Mind Live Stranger Science. Join all three of us as we record a live podcast about the exciting science and tantalizing pseudoscience underlying the hit Netflix show, Stranger Things. It all goes down Friday, October 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Hudson Mercantile and. Manhattan. Stuff you missed in history class has a show right before us, so you can really double down. Learn more and buy your tickets today at New York Comic slash NYCC-presents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Now, Joe, I want you to imagine yourself for a second, uh, do a little mental time travel here, a little, uh, a little fantasizing.
1: Okay, wait, no, am I going to the future where
0: the crab monsters rule? No, 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 you're going to go to the past, but not so far back in time that you encounter the crab monsters uh, again. From their first visit. Right. No, no. I want you to imagine yourself as a a king or a queen ruling over a troubled kingdom. Okay, not hard to do. Yeah, especially after a recent episode on uh, Greek fire where we talked about uh, the Byzantine Empire, right? Exactly. You're constantly warring against rival powers on all borders. Your enemies are legion every stranger is a potential assassin and every cup of wine is a potential poison plot. I have often gotten the feeling that it
1: is a natural part of the sort of unique decadence of hereditary monarchs to be terrified of poison above mm. all other things. I know it was after a guy named Richard Roos tried to poison the Bishop of Rochester to death in 1531 that Henry VIII in Parliament decided in England people found guilty of poisoning would be punished by being boiled alive yeah i mean you could tell it bothered him yeah like he didn't like the idea well you can get in henry's head a little bit like mm -hmm. he's there feasting having some lamprey pie or something (laughs) and he's like somebody must have it in for me and what if they came at me straight through the food it would be the worst possible thing
0: what's such a subtle weapon
1: yeah, and maybe it has something to do with like kings and queens feasting while their people starve, so you know, the poisoning of their food seems like this unbearably ironic reward and thus the thing they fear above all else.
0: Oh, yes, and of course we have so many different uh fictional, mythological and and historic examples of this type of thing happening. I right. mean, how many different rulers or, or, or at least characters get poisoned in Shakespeare?
1: Okay. So if you're Henry VIII, or, or really, you're any king, queen, somebody who fears being attacked right in the food, <laughs> what are your options?
0: Well, you know, you could, uh, you could have a, a food taster, a wine taster, and sort of try everything out on an individual before it comes to your lips. What if nobody wants that job? Well... In that case, you need to turn to your trusted advisor okay joe, king joe your're uh, because your trusted advisor has has traveled far and he's uh, he spent a lot of time with uh, with uh, with crumbling uh, tomes of arcane knowledge and secrets and one day this wizard presents you with an ornate drinking vessel carved from a mysterious substance it's unlike any wood or stone you've ever seen, and he tells you that this cup will alert you to the presence of any poison poured within it, for it is crafted from the sacred horn of the unicorn. Wow.
1: So the unicorn goblet is like a tattletale cup. It's a chemical tattletale, and yeah. it'll somehow let you know if you are entering the danger zone.
0: Yeah, that well, that's the idea, that it's uh, it's... I mean, you can ask the wizard, you might say, well, does it does it light up? Does it is it going to flash? Is, you know, what's going to be the effect? How am I going to know?
1: Now, unfortunately, I think I would have a hard time coming across this cup because the unicorns don't exist.
0: That that is a, certainly a design flaw here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the natural world has never known a true unicorn, but it has long known the thundering footsteps Of the rhinoceros. Oh, okay. And humans have long sought its horn for alleged uh, medicinal and magical purposes. A
1: fact that is both intriguing and kind of sad, because you have to imagine how they get
0: the horn. That's right. So, pretty much, uh, our entire episode is going to be intriguing and sad. It's going to be uh, magical, but we're also going to dive into the 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 possible scientific uh, basis for some of these alleged properties of rhino horn. Most of them do not pan out. We'll go ahead and let you know that right up front, just in case you are considering buying rhino horn for some purpose or another. But the science is still interesting.
1: Right. So when you see a rhinoceros, I think it's pretty clear. The first thing you're going to notice about it is the horn. In fact, the word rhinoceros comes from the observation of the horn.
0: Literally, it means nose horn. Well, if not the, the nose horn, then just the sheer size of these creatures. Um, if you happen to see one at a zoo, I mean, they're a megafauna. They are enormous. I was, uh, in the past year, I was at the, uh, the, the zoo down in New Orleans mm-hmm. and, the uh, their, their rhino habitat, they have it laid out in such a way that you can, there's certainly a, a divider between you and the rhinos. Oh, good. Uh, but, but you're, you're sort of at level or perhaps a little lower than the rhinos oh. because they're kind of, they're kind of on a hill, a slight incline anyway. So, you're 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 kind of instead of looking down on them as if they're in a pit like you encounter in a lot of zoos uh you're you're kind of viewing them on their level on your level and uh, it just it just makes you realize even more just how enormous these creatures are also makes it harder for a suicidal person to jump down into the rhino pit Right, yeah, <laughs> because it's going to be a little more effort to, to meet your death at the hands of the rhino.
1: Now, a funny kind of linguistic connection, of course, is that w- when I look at a rhinoceros, one of the things I often think okay. is I see a dinosaur. And I see mm-hmm. that in in plenty of mammals, actually. I, this, is, this might be a weird peek into my messed up brain. But when I see horses, I think of dinosaurs. Huh. I'm not quite sure why. It's something about the elongation of the face paired with the size of the animal. Uh, but with the rhinoceros, it's it's definitely that horn. I mean, it makes me think of the Triceratops. But the linguistic connection is, you know, they've got the same thing in the name, the cer- Triceratops, the ah, three-horned yes. face. And the rhinoceros, the sera there, both comes from the Greek keros for horn.
0: Ah, nose horn, basically. Yeah. Okay. Now, currently, there are five species and 11 subspecies of rhino. Some have two horns while others have one. And uh, we should really drive home a few facts about that horn. Uh, you can you can argue that it's not even a true horn because it doesn't have a bone core. So and if you see a skeleton of a rhino in a museum, uh, sometimes you'll notice that there's no – they won't have any kind of a horn fixture attached. Hmm. Um, I know this was the case at uh, the Field Museum in Chicago. They had some uh, rhino skeletons. I can't recall if they were um, – extant rhinos or some sort of prehistoric uh, rhino beast, Mm -hmm. but uh, there was no horn present on the skeleton. Interesting. The rhino horn actually has more in common with horse hooves or the the beak of of a bird or a turtle. It's made of keratin. This is the stuff you find in hair and fingernails. And the core of the horn contains dense mineral deposits of calcium and melanin, but it's not like a true bony core. So it's more like a
1: big, densely packed protein horn rather than a bone horn. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's kind of like just a big, enormous fingernail in many respects.
1: Now, don't let that be deceiving because it still probably hurts if it comes at you at high speed.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's still a a formidable weapon, Uh, but the horns can be cracked uh the horns can be removed i know that the male rhino they previously had at zoo atlanta uh the horn became cracked and then they had to remove it entirely oh no yeah because the, so the horns can be removed the material of the horn can be ground down into a powder or it can be made into shavings uh and it can be carved and it can be polished and when it's polished it uh it often takes on a translucent quality and the luster allegedly increases with age
1: now On one hand, it's hard to deny that many of the artifacts that people make out of rhinoceros horns are truly very beautiful. They're astonishing Mm -hmm. to look at, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, these are acquired through the poaching of rhinoceroses. And in many cases, rhinoceroses are – endangered or critically endangered species.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into some of those those numbers here in a bit. Uh but if you want to see examples of these these rhino horn drinking vessels, uh we will include two images of them uh as well as uh, some images of rhinos uh on the landing page for this episode at stuff to blow your mind dot com.
1: Now I know throughout history that the rhinoceros horn has had not just decorative purposes, but believe it's believed to have had magical purposes as well.
0: That's right. Yeah, a lot of the magical uses for rhino horns are rooted in ancient Asian practices, and these entered into European culture as early as the Middle Ages and intensified in the 16th and 17th centuries with along with increased European trade with the East and West Indies. Hmm. Uh, I found an excellent source on all of this from uh, an author uh, by the name of uh, uh, Marnie P. Stark. This came out in 2003, and it's uh, titled Mounted Bezoar Stones – Seychelles nuts and rhinoceros horns, decorative objects as antidotes in early modern Europe.
1: So the idea here is if uh, if maybe you are that king and you already had some poison, that in some sense it was believed that some of these things might uh, uh, cure you or might save you.
0: Yeah, or just serve as magical protective elements. Uh, uh, so uh, the author here points out, that, uh, you know, the 13th century in particular saw the European introduction of, quote, poison detectors or proofs of mounted griffin claws, serpent's tongues, toadstones, and a host of other materials <laughs> as, quote, part of the rituals of dining as well as rich collections.
1: Oh, I like that. So like m- maybe one thing that you truly think is functional in one century at detecting poison just becomes a sort of uh, enjoyable and traditional part of how you have dinner.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and I imagine, you know, you, you may have somebody trying your food for you to keep poison uh, uh, from entering your system. You may have spies everywhere and guards on hand, and you're threatening everyone with, with boiling if they uh, they try to, to get some sort of uh, deadly poison into your body. But it also helps to have a few magical trinkets on hand just in case, just to hedge your bet. Right. Now – uh, you you might be wondering, and I'm, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you you might think, well, what are bezor stones? Well, these were allegedly an obtained indigestible stone from the gast, uh, gastrointestinal tract of an animal, such as a goat, and you would wear it as an amulet. And this is this probably had an uh, Arabic origin, and sometimes these were mounted with bands of metal or gold around them, so it would be kind of like a paperweight that you know I guess sets on the table. Uh, with you while you eat. I think I recall them having something to do with the plot of one of the Harry Potter books. Oh, really? do not okay. somebody
1: swallow a bezoar to cure some kind of poison?
0: Oh, maybe they do. Okay, that does that does ring a bell. Our Potter fans will have to clue us in there. Uh, she was always uh, throwing in all sorts of uh, wonderful little occult uh, uh, tidbits, right? Uh, and uh, as far as uh, Seychelles nuts go, these are sea coconuts. It's just, oh, okay. So it's a, you know it's just a it's just a coconut essentially, but it is. Uh, it, it has an exotic quality
1: to it. <laughs> hey, if you're in uh, 15th century Europe, you know, yeah. <laughs> coconut looks pretty magical.
0: Now, the idea that 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 horn, particularly uh, a rhino horn, could have some sort of um, healing properties or, or poison-detecting uh, properties, you see that uh, go back at least as far as uh, – well, in one case, 5th century um, CE Persia uh where they believed that the horn vessel could detect poisons and would cause a bubbling in the uh the liquid that was in the horn.
1: Right. So if you're a lord who fears poisoning and somebody brings you your rhino horn goblet of wine, you you sit it down for a while and you observe it and if it starts to froth up, you know that your servant is, well, you probably don't actually know, but you might as well accuse your servant of trying to kill you. Well,
0: yeah, you have to boil somebody at that point. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, who's going to fear you, right? There's a wonderful quote here that Stark included uh, uh, in, in the paper. And this is from Swedish traveler Carl Peter Thunberg, 1773, uh, around the, the Cape of Good Hope. Hmm. The horn of the rhinoceros were kept by some people not only as rarities but also as useful in disease and for the purpose of detecting poisons. As to the former of these intentions, the fine shavings of the horn taken internally were supposed to cure convulsions. And spasms in children, with regard to the later, it was generally believed that goblets made of these horns in a turner's lathe could dis- would discover a poisonous draught that was put into them by making the liquor ferment till it ran quite out of the goblet. <laughs> Such horns as were taken from a young rhinoceros calf were said to be the best and the most to be depended on. Of these, goblets are made which are set in gold and silver and made presents to kings, people of distinction, and particular friends, or else sold at a high price, sometimes at the rate of $56 a goblet. Now, those are $1773. Yeah. Yes, $56 went a lot further back then. Yeah.
1: You know, I got to imagine that if you're thinking the rhino horn cup has these powers, it may tie in via the the type of magical thinking that was common then to the powers of the rhinoceros itself, surely, right? I mean, yeah. I think that was a common mode of thought, like a powerful beast that, you know, in life has, some, has a strong body and can do great harm or something uh, if it's enraged. Can also be powerful in a magical sense if you take objects from its body or some kind of sympathetic magic, things that have touched it or come from it.
0: Yeah, and and so many of these these vessels also had rhinos carved on them. So they really didn't want you to forget where this came from. That was part of the branding, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The rhino long had a reputation in the West as a ferocious beast capable of conquering all others. And this was uh, thanks in in no small part to observations by Pompey the Great and uh, the writings of uh, Pliny the Elder, a frequent uh, frequent, uh, topic here on the show.
1: Uh, One of our favorite sources of ancient misinformation. (laughs)
0: Yes. Uh, So one of these rhinos is said to have fought an elephant in the games of Pompey. And another one came to Europe in 1515 as a gift to King Manuel of Lisbon. And he he also, you know, since he had a rhino and apparently had an elephant as well, he planned to just recreate the battle. What was wrong with these people? They I just know. wanted to yeah. fight animals to You get death? this amazing creature, uh, you know, imported, and then the first thing you want to do is fight him. I mean, even pa- Pablo Escobar, uh, I don't think he did that. I think he just kept the exotic animals around. Whatever. Yeah. So uh, in this case, in case you're wondering, the rhino allegedly won the barbaric sport. Uh, but but before it died, an artist sketched the animal, and he sent it to a certain artist of note. Right, Albrecht Dürer in uh, in Nuremberg, and so
1: this is where we get this classic image. If you have not seen it, you should look up Dürer's rhinoceros. D U R E R. So Dürer did many of these drawings and woodcuts of the 16th century, and this image is just out of this world. It, it <laughs> looks like an H.R. Geiger creation, and I'm not making that up, am I, Robert? I'm no, not. no. It's this biomechanical robot alien. Or also, I, I can imagine that you could look at it as a melancholy animal with these sad downcast eyes covered in finely machined metal
0: armor with psychedelic designs, yeah, I mean that that describes it to a T. It seems like something that you would see tromping around in a like a weird psychedelic French animated film, like something Mobius would have created. Yeah, it's it's like something
1: out of the Codex Seraphinianus, yeah. except it's it's a real animal.
0: Yeah, and you know he was of course he was going off of this this illustration. He was going off uh, you know you know secondhand information here, and. uh it, and he, But he did get the idea of the rhino down, especially if this was indeed uh, an Indian rhino, which has more uh, sort of skin flaps going on. It does have more of an armor plating appearance. And he just uh, – in his interpretation of the rhino, uh, he really takes this and runs with it. He just uh, exaggerates it to fantastic effect.
1: Yeah, that does appear to be what's going on because here we see the rhino in the image has one horn and it's got these long ridges going across its armor plates.
0: It also has an extra little uh, – if you notice this on the illustration, near the word rhinoceros. There's a horn above the shoulder blades. Yeah, which is interesting, and it looks a lot like uh, a small unicorn horn, which I think is interesting. Hmm. And it ties into our topic here because in uh, Stark's paper, she writes that the antidotal powers of the horn, uh, the the idea that you could – you know, take the powder of the horn and it would cure some ailment or cure a poison inside you. Uh, that These were borrowed from tales of the mythical unicorn. Oh, OK. She writes that since at least the 14th century, the horn of the unicorn, which was in turn usually a narwhal or walrus tusk um, to begin with. Oh, those wa- uh, those
1: uh, narwhal horns are great. By the way, that mm-hmm. narwhal horn, it's a tooth. Did you know that? Yeah,
0: I, I yeah. and there was some recent news about the narwhal. There's some new footage. I want to say.
1: I mean, can you imagine if it, like a human was like this? Like if you had like one six foot tooth
0: just shooting straight out the front of your mouth? We could probably do a whole episode on all the teeth we're thankful we don't have. When you count <laughs> narwhal teeth and uh, or the babarusa, uh, where the you know the tusk will grow up, grows up through the, the like the. Basically, the roof of its snout and can curve back around and uh, dive into their brain uh, if if they're uh, if if they're they're left uh, to grow that long. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we'll, well, leave, anyway. we'll leave that for another another episode. The
1: long front tooth—it certainly makes kissing hard.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, well, with the Barbarossa, not to get too off topic, the other—I mean—the weird thing is they when they fight, these things are brittle, so they they just they break off. Mm. So it's. Like like I say, be, be thankful. As weird as human teeth are, as awful as they can be, um, they're a worse way to have teeth. Well, anyway, so we
1: have all these ancient teeth, tusks, horns, things that people think are from unicorns, and they're believed to have these magical powers. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. With the unicorn horn or the alleged unicorn horn, they believe that you could use this as a, r- a remedy for poison. You could use it to to cure diseases, even the plague. And then when Europeans began encountering the rhinoceros and it's, and, uh, and its horn – uh, you know, out when they were, you know, traveling and abroad, then the reality and the myth became intertwined. So they took what, what they observed about the rhino and then in turn they, they took what others in, in foreign lands told them about the rhino and their magical beliefs and then they took their own ideas about the unicorn and it all just came, kind of became meshed together. Um, they, you know, they encountered all these, uh, uh, additional traditions of magico medicinal powers that were associated with the rhino horn and they incorporated them into their own beliefs. Mm. And weirdly enough some accounts indicate that even when rhino horn and unicorn were considered distinct uh you know th- so they,
1: people believed in both unicorn horns and rhino horns and yes. thought they were separate things. Yeah,
0: you know, and the, even in these cases, uh, there are instances where uh, where they talk about, well, if you can't get unicorn horn, rhino horn will do. Ah, you're giving yeah. away the game. Come yeah. on. So, I, what's I the that really point of the unicorn horn? <laughs> now, in terms of uh, of other. Uh, Nationalities and other cultural beliefs regarding the rhino horn. Um, there are various tidbits about this. For starters, a uh, fourth-century Chinese writer, Ho Kung believed that horns were antidotal because the rhino ate poisonous plants and trees, enabling it to conquer the poison. Oh, okay. So there's a
1: slightly more, you know, proto-scientific way of thinking right. about it. Not, yeah. you know, not quite fully rigorous, but you you can see the the. Chain of cause and effect going
0: on yeah, there. it's not just hey, it's magic uh, yeah. there there's an, an attempt to understand what could be underlying this presumed effect
1: hmm.
0: now, in terms of all the various medicinal qualities, alleged medicinal qualities of uh, of the rhino horn, uh, this is pretty common in the traditional medicine systems of Malaysia, South Korea, India, and of course china
1: so so you've got it in Chinese traditional medicine, what did they think it did?
0: Well, the idea was that you could take shaved or powdered horn and it could be boiled in water to treat fever, rheumatism, gout, and various other conditions. Uh, 16th century, that's uh, Ming Dynasty, Chinese pharmacist and just general polymath, this guy was really amazing, Li Shijin wrote that it could uh, even cure snake bites, hallucinations, typhoid, headaches, carbuncles, vomiting, food poisoning, and devil possession. Oh, great. Now, the interesting thing is that uh you'll find various sources out there there that say you know rather scandalously oh well you know we have all these problems with rhino poaching because people in asia use it as an aphrodisiac mm-hmm. which um the thing is when i could run across of no um Verifiable information about that being the case. No actual cases of, 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 of rhino horn being prescribed as an aphrodisiac, for instance, in traditional Chinese medicine. Now,
1: on the other hand, I will say that it seems like almost anything is sometimes prescribed as an aphrodisiac.
0: Yeah, and, you know, that's not, I mean, you can see where even if it's not part of traditional med- medical systems, mm-hmm. it would not take much for something to, to for a belief to become tweaked in that direction
1: right you know i mean i could start a rumor today that canned crab is an aphrodisiac
0: wasn't this uh this was on something what was uh there was something about canned crab as an oh this was on game of thrones right no spoilers ah, robert yeah okay i knew it was it was like is it rick and morty or is it game of thrones It could go either way um But yeah, as far as as far as I could tell, and if anyone out there has more information on uh, illicit uh, and illegal aphrodisiacs, uh, let me know. But uh, I found like multiple like spokespeople on behalf of of Chinese traditional medicine who were saying, "No, this is not that's that's not something we use it for." Uh, Though of course they're having to they've been they've had to address uh, the other uses and come up with uh, botanical alternatives to rhino horn right now the ancient you mean
1: mean because of ecological considerations
0: yes yes now the ancient greeks uh they also used the horn as well uh, and they said that it could purify water so we see sort of similar overlap there now on top of all these magical uh, medicinal uses it's worth noting that with it uh, you can just have a purely ornamental use of the horn as well i mean as far as you can you know have any purely ornamental use of a of a man-made material right mm-hmm. but uh just using it uh, for various ornamental purposes that dates back at least to 7th century CE China and it's long been a, a, a Yemeni practice where you have these uh, special daggers these uh, jambiya daggers and uh, you would have the, the the hilt of the thing carved out of rhino horn i mean i think i already mentioned this
1: earlier but it is something that <laughs> struck me multiple times when I was looking through the images of these artifacts, which is that it. I, I want to acknowledge the artistry and the beauty that goes into crafting these while at the same time not approving of things that are made out of the bodies of endangered animals.
0: Yeah, because you you want to admire them for their beauty, but you don't want to admire them so much that you're sort of contributing to a, a cultural desire for these items. Right. So... If you're if you're even thinking about uh, acquiring a rhino horn artifact, uh, then make sure you listen to the rest of the episode because we'll get into some of the, the the ramifications of all of this. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will
1: talk more about what science has to say about the chemistry of the rhino horn. All right, we're back. So, Robert. Is there solid scientific evidence that we should use the rhinoceros horn for its magical and scientific medicinal properties?
0: Uh, no, <laughs> there's not. I mean, I mean, science can certainly uh, butt in and say, well, first of all, there's no such thing as magic. Uh, there's there's such thing as medicine, and to a certain extent, there's such thing. You know, there, there is the placebo effect that has to be taken into account in all matters. But you can have you know wood chips. And that can have a, a, a placebo effect if you have, you know, an, a belief in the wood chip as a curative uh, element.
1: OK. But so while there is not broad agreement in the scientific community that rhino horn – I mean even ecological considera- considerations aside, even if you could get synthetic stuff.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, there- like if the horns fell off and were just you know laying over the ground.
1: Right. Even then, there's not good evidence that we should use it for whatever all these purposes are, curing fever, curing devil possession or food poisoning. Um, there might be some tidbits, right? Some little areas where there's some crossover
0: there in, in just talking about the idea of consuming the horn for as a, as a medicinal element there's there's almost no evidence to support it and what little evidence there is it's just so minuscule that it does not, it, it doesn't make it worth anybody's while, it doesn't make it worth you know, breaking the law risking, um, um, you know arrest or death, trying to cut off a rhino's horn, it, and, and it's not worth the, the money or, the, or the, you know, the risk of engaging in illegal activity to consume it. Um, let me get into the examples here. So in, uh, in 1990, researchers at Chinese University in Hong Kong, they found that large doses of horn could slightly lower fever in rats. But the concentration here was so – was, it was so great that it, it far exceeded what was used in traditional Chinese medicine anyway. I wonder what the long-term side effects are of just eating a bunch of ground-up keratin. Well, I mean it's, it would be <laughs> – it would I guess be like if you just chewed your fingernails your whole life, like not counting any you know damage to your, your nail beds or whatever. But just if you ate fingernail clippings all the time or ground-up fingernail clippings into a fine powder and put it in your smoothie every morning. Hmm. And in fact, uh, in an interview with PBS Nature, ecologist uh, Raj Amen of the Zoological Society of London says you'd be better off doing just that than engaging in the consumption of rhino horn.
1: So like if you want to lower your fever a little bit and you don't have access to aspirin or any of the normal stuff you'd use to do that, mm-hmm. you might just eat all your fingernails and hair.
0: I guess, yeah, but, you know, you probably have access to these other things that would work much better and are far more verified. Uh, In his 1987 uh, uh, JAMA Dermatology article, Skin Potions, which is just a lovely title (laughs) for uh, a paper, Leonard M. Millstone, M.D., wrote that uh, powders of rhino horn amount to, quote, no more than compacted stratum corneum. That's the outermost layer of the epidermis consisting of dead skin. Right. So we're back to the keratin. Yeah. And according to a 2014 New Scientist article by Curtis Abraham, a Taiwanese human study found that a rhino horn could temporarily reduce fever in children but was no more effective than aspirin. And animal studies in the UK and South Africa discovered no pharmacological effects of uh, this or any animal horn at all. Hmm. Well, I think that's about what he'd, what we would expect, right? Right. Now, I, I to, to just uh, go back to traditional Chinese medicine for a second. Uh, I, I do want to mention as well that in in most of those models, you would you wouldn't have someone just consuming the horn. The horn would would be the ground up horn would be utilized with other uh, ingredients, or herbs, or what have you. So, you know, you could make the argue well, some concoction that contained the horn might work but if it did work it's not the horn that's probably causing it it's something else in the uh in the potion if you will
1: i mean this is the the classic potion trick right if you just throw a whole bunch of stuff into a cauldron and get somebody to take it on one hand you've got placebo effect working on the mm-hmm. other hand you threw a bunch of stuff in there and something might do something and then third there's this Thing that uh, that I think we've talked about before, like the idea that essentially any detectable effect can sort of be interpreted as the desired effect.
0: Yeah, and uh, you can also say sunk cost probably plays a role as well because exactly. at this point you've gone to the apothecary store, you've you've paid for this stuff, and uh, you've probably had to sort of choke it back. You've so you've gone through sort of three trials yep. to get there, so it better do something. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna believe it did something. Yep. Otherwise,
1: I wasted all this time and energy. You're riding my favorite horse. The <laughs> sunk cost fallacy explains a
0: lot. Now, uh, luckily, in China, Taiwan, and South Korea, uh, rhino horn has been completely banned uh, from use in medicine since about 1993. And in China, it can only be used in research. So as we'll discuss, there have been a lot of efforts to curb the 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 poaching of rhinos and the illicit trade of rhino horn.
1: Now, what about this old belief that we started off with that, you know, if you're a king or a queen and you fear poisoning, you could have a rhino horn cup that would detect any poisons placed within it? Is there any scientific
0: evidence that that could be true? Well, as it turns out, there is. And, and it comes down to the fact that you know we, we, as we 've mentioned there 's this idea that the poison would bubble or froth or froth and bubble out over the uh, uh, the edge of the cup mm-hmm. uh, if if there was a poison in it, and so therefore we have what appears to be uh, an account of a chemical reaction and where there's chemical uh, where there 's chemistry there's there's science right there's a potential for there to be some actual chemical reaction taking place. So I'm ha- I've had trouble finding a primary source on this, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's been widely reported by PBS Nature, rhino con- conservation groups, and various academic page- papers that there may be scientific grounds for this in some cases. So as you'll remember, the rhino horn is keratin. Right. Stuff in your hair and fingernails. Right. And what do many poisons contain? Alkaline. This is a like a base as opposed right. to an acid, uh, and this may react chemically with the carotene, and uh, this can produce frothing, foaming, or bubbles. So, in in the instance that someone is trying to poison you with a with a, with an alkaline poison, there is the possibility that the cup could detect it. Now, Joe, I know you looked into this as well. Uh, were you able to find any additional information on this uh, this possible chemical reaction? Well,
1: I, I yeah, I mean, I, I thought about this, and I, I want to start with one claim okay. about how this – because, as you said, you know, this is claimed all over the place, but nobody has exactly explained how it would work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one one of the claims I found on this was from a paper, uh, or actually, it was a it was a sort of book length work. Uh, published in Oryx, the International Journal of Conservation, called A Look at Threatened Species by Lee Miriam Talbot in 1960. And the author here is talking about how rhino horns are used with regard to poisons, and this is what the author claims. Quote, in Sumatra, it should be drunk as a purgative if one feels the first signs of poisoning. In Burma, a belief exists that when one puts rhino horn shavings into a cup containing poison, they will bubble and smoke. In Nepal and parts of India, the belief is that if poison is placed into a rhino horn cup, the poison will bubble, discolor, or become harmless, or else the cup will slowly disintegrate or shatter. Interestingly enough, there may be some basis for this latter belief— Many of the old poisons were strong alkaloids, and the horn is what amounts to an agglutination of hair, closer in structure to toenails than to cattle horns or deer antlers. Such a structure would indeed be affected by a strong alkaloid, although the shattering and other dramatic behavior is probably an
0: embellishment. It's a wonderful embellishment, though, because it just sounds fantastic. The, the king is at his table. Uh, the, the wine is poured into this vessel, and it is so poisonous that it just shatters the magical vessel.
1: Yeah, and so
0: like he says, that
1: might be an embellishment, but I think there's a chance that there's something to this for certain kinds of poisons. Like we said, most of the, the sources we found that claim this don't really explain how it would work, but I think I've got an idea. Um, it might work for any poisons that are relatively strong bases, as we mentioned. And here's my example. When your shower drain gets clogged and the water gets backed up and starts to collect around your ankles, what's going on? Well, unless you're doing something really weird in the shower, the substance most likely clogging your shower or bathtub drain pipe is what? Well, it's hair, right? Yeah. I mean, unless you're, like, eating olives in the shower and (laughs) spitting the pits down the drain. Anyway, yeah, it's hair. It's going to be mostly hair made of keratin. So what do you do? Well, you can't just run water over the hair until it dissolves. That's never going to happen. Keratin, which is what hair is made of, is highly stable in water and resists dissolution. So you will have to avail yourself of some different weapons. Now, if you've got special equipment like a drain snake and a DIY attitude, you might be able to do that. But most people probably, I know what you do. What do you do? You go out... Mm -hmm. You snag a
0: bottle of what? You get some of that Drano. Right. Yeah, because like you said, the snake option – is uh is good if you really want to get in there and if you want to behold what is down there right Uh, pull that wolf tail out (laughs) oh yeah which i I don't you know recommend but i mean sometimes that's what you got to do well but the the drano is is great because you just pour it down there and you just let it sit for a little bit and you're done
1: right now i'm not necessarily advocating the use of chemical drain cleaners especially because they can be dangerous if they splash back on you or something like that so uh but you know it is what it is people use this stuff now what's the main active ingredient in most chemical drain cleaners for example draino it's going to be sodium hydroxide which is NaOH also known as lye sodium hydroxide is this highly alkaline inorganic substance that has a caustic reaction with proteins Proteins, like the carrot, like in hair, so essentially it fizzes and eats right through organic matter, including the protein keratin, uh, which is the main ingredient in hair and in rhinoceros horns so it, now it 's more complicated than this because medieval poisoners probably were not putting drain cleaner into the lord 's wine goblet. Mm-hmm uh and uh the source i mentioned a minute ago called out alkaloids and there is a difference between an alkaline and an alkaloid though most but not all alkaloids are alkaline okay but anyway if the poison in question is a reasonably strong base if it's if it's strongly alkaline i think there is a good chance it would react with a keratin based cup dissolving and reacting with the walls of the vessel it'd be kind of like storing drain cleaner in a chalice of tightly woven hair disgusting
0: (laughs) well the the chalice of tightly woven hair this makes me think of uh of uh, of a piece of art uh titled breakfast in fur have you ever seen this no i don't think so uh, it's like like dinnerware made out of of hair yeah. <laughs> or fur you know so who did that oh i can't remember the name uh i have a friend of mine from uh from high school studied uh, like uh, ma- fabric art material art and uh this was uh, a a piece that she uh, uh that inspired her uh, her email address so it's it's always stuck in my head all right. Well, on that note, let's take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss the rhinoceros a little bit more, uh, the various extinct and extant species out there, as well as the whole conundrum of, uh, of, of anti-poaching efforts and rhino conservation. All right, we're back so joe let's let's talk about extinct rhinos first. do you have any any favorites? Well, I know you're going to mention elasmotherium. oh yeah, that's the big one the the ugly unicorn the ugly unicorn why do people think it's ugly i I mean I think it's beautiful it's just, I think the problem is that sometimes uh, well there's some actual unicorn um uh, mythology to consider here but you'll have these these situations where the science papers the science journalism will pick up uh news and they'll talk about it as if it's a unicorn and then people will look at this big uh ferocious beast and they'll compare it to uh, those beautiful unicorns from say the last unicorn or legend and they don't quite uh, they don't the comparison doesn't stack up was there a unicorn in legend there were two unicorns what what did they do Oh, that—that that was the whole deal, right? That the the goblins like took the unicorn's horn, and oh uh, yeah, and the the big Tim Curry devil creature had the horn, and it was in. I don't. I, really, I
1: only remember Tim Curry from
0: that movie, that <laughs> and the soundtrack. Oh yeah, the soundtrack is wonderful. Tangerine Dream soundtrack on that one. Um, yeah, I don't. It, it's a film where the the visuals and the the sound stick with me, but I'm not really sure I remember the plot at all. But, uh, yeah, at any rate, Elasmotherium, the, and in particular, Elasmotherium uh, Sibericum, uh is an interesting case that ties in with all the stuff we've been talking about because there was a recent study in the American Journal of Applied Sciences that placed the beast in modern-day Kazakhstan – a mere 29,000 years ago, while previous estimates placed it outside the 200,000-year run of human history.
1: Oh, okay. So that means we could have been
0: interacting. Right. And this supports an argument that myths of the Western unicorn and even the uh, various Eastern uh, uh, beasts such as the Chinese uh, Quillen or the Japanese Kirin are based on accounts of human interactions with the uh, actual unicorn beasts. Mm. Now, in China, there's also the counter argument that the Asian rhino populations once uh, existed in greater number throughout ancient China, and that's what these myths are referring to. And indeed, this is based on historical uh, writings, uh, uh, art, and even uh, uh, you know fossil evidence. Uh, and this would have uh, this would have been the the northern Sumatran rhino in particular. Now. In terms of other extinct rhino species, we have some, some recent, fairly recent additions to that list. The Western Black Rhinoceros, uh, the subs, uh, this is a Sub-Saharan uh, Africa, uh, species. Primarily it was found in Cameroon. This was dec- declared extinct in 2011, and it may have been extinct for some five or six years at that point. No, but there is still a black rhinoceros that exists, right? Yes, but these are just, um uh, variations of the black rhino that have Blinked out. For instance, the southern black rhinoceros disappeared around 1850, and the northeastern black rhino uh, also went extinct uh, sometime in the 20th century. Hmm. And of course, there are all these additional cool prehistoric rhinos and rhino like beasts that uh, we don't really have time to get into. But you have like the woolly rhino, the titanic hornless rhinos known as the uh, Paraceratherium. And, uh, the, the wonderful sort of slingshot horned, uh, megacerops, uh, these were, and these were not technically rhinos. They were just rhino-like, uh-huh. but I was always intrigued by the images of them in my childhood, like prehistoric animal books because it looks like the formation for a slingshot. You know, it's like a slingshot. Y, like a Y-shaped horn. Oh, I know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. You can just imagine them, you know, somehow acquiring large rubber bands and outfitting them and I don't know, finding smaller mammals to ride atop their their neck and fire projectiles out of it.
1: I mean it, they also kind of just look like they're perfectly designed to like skewer your buttocks <laughs> as the thing tosses you into the
0: air. yeah, true uh, yeah, and that was probably more uh, in keeping with the actual uh, purpose of the uh, of the horn Now in terms of the the rhinos that we have today uh, that are still left in the world, we have uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, five different varieties. There's the white rhino, and this is found in northern uh, northern and southern varieties in Africa. Um, the northern is extinct in the wild, but uh, the southern rhino there are uh, an estimated roughly uh, twenty thousand four hundred and five individuals left in the world. And that's the most abundant one, right? Right. That's the if you want to call it a success story, that's the success story. Um, some of these other the numbers are going to going to dip as we proceed, though. There's the black rhino that's uh, still found in eastern and southern Africa. This one has, has two horns, uh, by the way, uh, much like the white. And uh, this one is, uh, you're looking at around 5,000 or 5,055 individuals left. And then we have the Indian rhino, and this is found in India, Nepal, part of Pakistan. It has one horn. This is the one with the fabulous skin folds. It looks really cool. Yeah. And you'll find somewhere around uh, 3,555 of these left in the wild. Then you have the uh, the Javan rhino, and this is only found in Java, Indonesia. The male has one horn, the females are hornless, and as of 2016, only 63 individuals remained in the wild and in captivity combined. Wow. So, uh yeah. are they thinking that could come back or is that past the point of no return? I don't I don't know. You know, that's you're getting down to such slim numbers there that you, we've seen cases with other species where the numbers Become so reduced that even if you are able to bounce the species back, then there's not going to be a lot of genetic diversity there. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a continuing uphill battle, and you're certainly not going to have what you once had. Uh, and then finally, we have the Sumatran rhino, which is one of the ones that I really like. You only find this in the the very high altitudes of Borneo and Sumatra uh it has two horns and then it's it's hairy it has this kind of reddish looking hair they're really they're really cool if you if you you know look up videos or photos of these guys
1: they're also relatively small
0: aren't they yeah they're the smallest of the uh of the extant rhinos and there are only around 275 left in the world all told, there were around 500,000 rhinos left in Africa and Asia at the beginning of the 20th century, and today it's more like 29,000 uh, in the wild due to poaching and loss of habitat. Now, if we're looking to act on this
1: immediately to try to turn that around and help populations bounce back, it seems like it'll it'll take longer to restore damaged or lost habitats. Yeah. Right. But is there anything that can be done about poaching immediately, or is this just one of those wicked problems that you know it's uh, it's like the the gopher game, like you can't stop
0: it? Well. He- there's some there have been some wonderful proposals on how to deal with it we'll We'll touch on some of these, but it it, it does seem more and more like a wicked problem like there' just there are a number of converging elements here, and there's some very well meaning initiatives that have come out to try and curb the the poaching of of rhino horn and the illicit trade of rhino horn but uh you know nothing is really stuck nothing is really uh, managed to cut into that trade too much, and then you know, t- to your point, when you couple this with you know tremendous habitat loss, which has j- challenged a number of uh, of animals, and certainly the megafauna that used to uh, you know roam free in these areas, uh, you have quite a problem. Now. Poaching, again, ha- has been a major factor in rhino endangerment and extinction. And while you, you can eat rhino meat, and they have been killed in the past for their meat and their skin, uh, the horn seems to be the, the main thing that's that's causing the poaching. And that's because the horn is the part of the rhino that fetches the highest price. That's, uh, that's what they're being poached for. Uh, and sometimes the poachers drug the animal and saw the horn off, but other times they are taking more than the horn after drugging the animal or they're just straight up killing the animal. So,
1: what what kind of efforts can be established to prevent poaching
0: or at least discourage it? Well, we've touched on some of the legal efforts. So, it's it's currently illegal for rhino horn sales to take place between countries, but interestingly enough, it's not illegal in South Africa, not anymore. So, in April of this year, South African courts ruled uh, that sales of rhino horns could take place provided the seller had a permit. And with these permitted cases, we're generally talking breeding farms. Uh, Mm. The horns in these cases are removed painlessly and humanely. The leading uh, rhino farmer, John Hume... Uh, according to BBC News, he believes that, that such a legal and open trade is, is going to be beneficial because as the, the trade, because the trade first of all can raise money that can help uh, conserve the species and he also thinks that these uh, open legal sales will drive down the price of illicit horn and reduce poaching. Now critics say that this practice will only increase the demand for for the horn it'll you know perhaps even normalize it plus if you have a legitimate trade taking place then that can provide cover For illegitimate trade to take place, you know.
1: Right. So if you're if you're trying to create a stigma around the sale of rhino horns, even if you've been failing, it's going to be even harder to establish that stigma if you're also selling legit horns next door.
0: Well, yeah, and also, like, let's say that you're you're traveling out of South Africa and some you know an official opens your bag and it has rhino horns in it. Right. And they say, "What's this?" And you go, "Oh, these are legal rhino horns. I have a permit." Uh Um. And maybe you have a fake permit. Like if permits exist, you have a leg up on deceiving the system. But if there's no such thing as a legal, uh, uh, you know, a legal sale of rhino horns, then there's no way you could pass that off, just to Mm. put it in very simple terms. Now, I guess one big question would be are the farmed
1: humane horns cheaper than the poached horns?
0: Oh, I, th- I think that would be the idea, right? That, yeah. that you would do this to drive down the price. Like why, why pay all this uh, this additional money for an illegitimate horn when you can get the real thing for cheaper uh, and it's official and it's verifiable? Now, there have uh, been efforts to curb poaching by practicing horn removal uh, you know, in the wild as well as a, a, as well as a tactic that actually brings us full circle, poisoning the rhino horn to prevent its eventual consumption. What? Yeah. So the idea is you would drill two holes into it, and then you would uh, you would pump in a, a poison. In particular, it would be a highly toxic ectoparasiticide, uh, and it would have a dye with it as well. So you would have this drilled, uh, discolored horn that would ideally uh, announce to any po- poachers, don't steal this horn. This horn is poisoned. And if you, uh, if you claim this horn and sell it, uh, it could kill somebody or make them sick. Now obviously the goal would not be
1: to just poison people for consuming rhino horn. The goal would be to prevent the poaching in the first place.
0: Uh, well I saw, I saw some quotes that seemed to imply the, the former as well. They're saying like this, this will punish somebody who take, who consumes it, which is, you know, a weird moral leg to try and stand on, I think.
1: Well, I I don't know. That's great. I mean, I believe very much in rhino conservation, but I don't think the answer is poisoning humans. Right.
0: Uh, I, I think that the larger idea here would be, well, first of all, create the idea that there are poisoned rhino horns, and then this would discourage the poaching. But the one of the problems here is that the individuals doing the poaching, they really don't care about the consumer. They're, they're selling to a middleman anyway. Mm-hmm. So- what does it matter to them? And they're and they're you're probably not thinking really long term about the the r- illicit rhino horn industry. Well, I guess the question is, does it work? Well, based on what I've been reading, it has not. So, uh, Savvy Sands, this is a private game reserve uh, uh, adjacent to the Kruger National Park. Uh, they tried the poison method, and it didn't work. Poachers still came. Middlemen still presumably bought the horn. Didn't make any difference. Uh, plus as, uh, pointed out by SaveTheRhino.org, as Asian traditional medicines reduce the need for rhino horn as they sort of try and spread the message that you don't need rhino horn, that there are other, uh, you know, various ingredients that will supposedly do the same, uh, job. And the poison horn could just be used for ornamental purposes and, you know, it would, would still, would still drive up the, uh, the demand for rhino horn and then uh, there are some additional criticisms as well there's the idea that the poison could wind up driving up the cost of unpoisoned horn so you've polluted the market but that means there's even less rhino horn out there uh, for individuals uh, wanting to consume it uh, and therefore it would be more expensive and then finally this is a big one too, big area too if you're going to go out and start you know, doing widespread rhino horn poisoning. Well, then you need people to go out, find the rhinos, uh, subdue them. uh you know, assume, I assume drug them, then, uh, you know, do the, perform the procedure on the horn. And, uh, You're talking about a treatment of hundreds and hundreds of rhinos in these cases.
1: Now, even though the poison in this scheme wouldn't get into the rhino and harm it directly. Right, because there's no blood
0: flow uh, to the in the horn. Yeah, yeah,
1: you can still imagine that just the process of like drugging the rhinos so that this could be done could lead to some injuries or could harm some rhinos.
0: Yeah, I mean it kind of comes back to the same situation as with widespread horn removal. Like somebody has to do it. Somebody has to pay for it and uh and it's just generally not going to be the manpower and the the money on hand now there are some other uh, interesting uh, schemes that have come into place to try and uh, and raise funds for rhino conservation efforts perhaps such as these uh, and and some of those oddly enough include uh, uh, hunting permits for rhinos uh, various areas have offered a very limited number of these for you know you know big ticket uh, westerners to come in and uh, and shoot a rhino with the money uh, presumably going for uh, going to rhino conservation efforts you know along the same lines as warning people about
1: poisoned horns i mean i just wonder so if the basis of medicinal demand for rhino horn or belief in the magical powers of the rhino horn is pernicious false rumors about mm-hmm. what the horns can do to help you i mean i wonder if it would be possible to To combat that just with pernicious rumors about the dangers of rhino horns, I mean I I guess that would be (laughs) – that's tough because you would also in that case be lying about it. You'd Mm. have to be intentionally spreading lies. But if you tried to spread a rumor that the horns would cause intense pain of the teeth or something, Mm.
0: whatever – well, I mean, you you look to our various uh, situations with uh, with illicit drugs, though, yeah. where there have been uh, public information campaigns that have uh, that have, you know that that have really uh, pushed the idea that say, oh, if you do meth, all all your teeth are going to fall out. You're going to have this meth mouth scenario, mm-hmm. which I've I've read I've read criticism that you know that says that that's not really a one to one situation. Uh, likewise, uh, steroid use. There's the the, 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 warning messaging, oh, that if you use, you know, steroids, there are all these additional problems that are going to occur with your body, but people still use them. Still so people, mm. people still use performance enhancing drugs. Uh, and then, you know, earlier you mentioned something about about uh, the use of uh, various alleged medicinal properties, the something is happening idea mm-hmm. that actually ties into one of the criticisms of poisoning the horn. Because what if you poisoned the horn and it does make its way, you know, through the various middlemen, it ends up as a powder in somebody's uh, smoothie, if you if you will. Uh, and so, if there's enough poison in there to cause some sort of reaction in the person's body, then something is happening, and they can attribute that to. Uh, to the to the, the positive effects of the horn. I feel something. I feel a little sick. That must be the horn getting on top of me. Right. And if, and if you spread these ideas, then that the horn is dangerous, that might feed into it as well. Like, of course, it's of course, rhino horn is going to make you feel a little weird because it's the power of the horn. Right. Like I can see how that might backfire.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But I agree that it's all kind of insane, right? Because the the science is pretty clear. Consuming rhino horn is going to do nothing for you. This is a purely uh, supernatural exercise on an individual's part, and yet it it continues. Maybe what you could do is try to
1: replace this with a belief in the power of consuming hair and fingernails – Like if you instead of spreading a false pernicious rumor about the dangers of rhino horn, spread a true infectious rumor uh, about the equivalence of rhino horn and fingernails and hair – So you, so instead you would just create a demand for the widely available substances that can be acquired without harming people. Unless this leads leads to poaching of humans for their hair and fingernails.
0: Oh, no, no. But the the great thing about this, I see how this could work. We just needed an initiative where certain powerful individuals or individuals that are at least, you know, icons of physical prowess, they must donate all of their fingernails and maybe their hair clippings. to to be used uh, in these traditional medicines instead. So like a like a John Cena or Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, people of this uh, stature, uh, they need to donate those clippings, and then those will be ground up and used in uh, traditional medicines instead.
1: Man, what does Arnold's hair taste like?
0: I don't know, but uh, but you know, if you have enough, uh, you've put enough fruit in the smoothie, you don't really taste it, I guess. <laughs> this is my Arnold hair goblet. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, hopefully we were able to give you, uh, you know, a, an interesting insight into the the history of rhino horn as it's been used for various magical and slightly scientific, slightly in the case of poison detection, slightly scientific uh, uses and uh, and rituals, uh, as well as just the the, the dire state of uh, of the rhino species that we still have with us in the world. Now, if anyone out there wants to learn more about uh, rhino conservation, there are a number of different organizations. Um, we, already, we already mentioned, I think, one of them, but there's also the International Rhino Foundation. You can go to rhinos.org for that. There's also International Anti-Poaching Foundation, and that is IAPF.org. All right. So, hey, if you want to see any of the the pictures that we were talking about earlier, check out the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of the podcast episodes. You'll find videos. You'll find blog posts and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Facebook.
1: And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can do that, as always, the old-fashioned way, by emailing us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.
0: I'm <laughs> sorry.